Good morning. Good morning, thank you. Welcome. We're in a big room this morning. Morning back there and up front in auditorium. Morning, Bridget, thank you, welcome. So welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for February 22nd, 2017. And those of you here for Pediatric Grand Rounds notice a larger room and a bigger audience today because we also are celebrating our annual Colin C. Stewart, Dr. Colin C. Stewart III um, annual lecture with our visiting professor with whom I enjoyed uh, breakfast and we ran a little bit late getting here and I thought we were in Auditorium H, but I think we're in good shape. We're gonna stay pretty much on time with lots of good stuff. We also have combined the opportunity for our Stewart lecturer, our visiting professor, Dr. Kripe, who has expertise in eating disorders, as he's gonna share this morning, among other things, um, to kick off an all-day eating disorders conference, the ABCs of eating disorders, ABCs of EDs. So some of you will stay here when many of our pediatric faculty will go off to see patients. Many will stay here for the rest of the day uh, events with our large faculty. So there'll be plenty of time for thanks and acknowledgments of the many people who pulled this day off afterwards, but I wanna make sure that Dr. Kripe has enough time and, and has an introduction by our Chief of General Academic Pediatrics and Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Sue Tansky, who trained with Dr. Kripe at the University of Rochester. So, Sue? Uh, I'm gonna actually begin by, by talking about uh, Dr. Colin C. Stewart. So thank you to the family in front, the front row here, and I'm gonna go through a little bit. We've got a slide of Dr. Of, uh, do we have a slide of, of oh, Dr. Stewart? Right okay, we, the, you saw the image on before of uh, Dr. Colin C. Stewart. Welcome to the 2017 annual Colin C. Stewart Memorial Lecture in Pediatrics. This is the 35th annual lecture. It started back in about 1971, and we got really rolling in about 1983. The Dr. Stewart that we are honoring is actually the second important Colin C. Stewart to Dartmouth because the senior Colin C. Stewart was actually a PhD professor of physiology and one of the deans of the medical school for many, many years. The Dr. Stewart we're here to celebrate, however, was a beloved pediatrician and professor of pediatrics who received his undergraduate degree at Dartmouth, magna cum laude in 1923, and then came to Dartmouth Medical School and got his MD ultimately from the University of Pennsylvania in 1926. He completed his pediatric training in Philadelphia and then went on to Mayo in Minnesota and returned to Hanover in 1931 to become the first pediatrician in the newly formed Hitchcock Clinic and was faculty at Dartmouth Medical School. So truly a father of pediatrics here at Dartmouth. Along with many official capacities and many professional organizations, including the American Board of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics, New Hampshire's Children's Aid, he was the first pediatrician for the Hanover Grade School and uh, the high school as well. He raised six kids here, including three sons who all attended Dartmouth. The girls were not allowed to attend Dartmouth because they didn't admit women until 1971, but we'll overlook that. <laughs> the Hanover Gazette in an editorial called him one of the town's most loved and valued citizens, a man who never put his own convenience over the call for a doctor's help. He passed away in 1962 at the very young age of only 59 after a, a brief illness. In one of his obituaries, his deep and abiding love of children was noted. He never merely treated a case, but always felt a genuine compassion for any sick child and never spared himself in doing everything in his power to bring back life and health. In this spirit, the Colin C. Memor Stewart Memorial Lectureship was established in 1971 by friends and family in his memory, and we celebrate his tradition of excellence in patient care and teaching with this annual lecture. 
And we're very proud that Dr. Kripe, another master clinician and master educator, is here to be our lecturer this year. And I thank the stewards for your ongoing commitment to pediatrics and to Dartmouth Medical School, Geisel School of Medicine. We've got two children, Jake and Mary, and we've got two grandchildren, Sally and Karen, and we have a niece, Kit, who are all here in the front row, and they'll be here afterwards if you'd like to say thank you for their ongoing commitment to our division. Thank you. And as mentioned, I had the privilege of working with Dr. Kripe when I was a resident at Strong Memorial Hospital, University of Rochester. And uh, so these comments come more from the heart than from his CV. I will say that uh, he was... He did his undergrad, he's actually crossed paths with, with your dad in many ways. Um, he went to Temple University in, in Philadelphia for his uh, medical school. He did LaSalle College for undergraduate, also in Philadelphia, St. Uh, Christopher's, also in the Philly area. And then he went to Rochester, where I think he's been forever since. And he really is an institution. There are a number of former residents, medical students, and faculty here in the audience who've all been under the tutelage of our master clinician and educator. We just uh, had a little sidebar remembering a patient that we shared when I was a resident. Uh, I cannot say enough how much Dr. Kripe has shaped the eating disorders treatment in the United States, and he has many, many lauds and awards that have gone throughout his career, but perhaps the most important one for many of the students in the room is that he was the MVP forever, uh, the most valuable professor at all of our uh, morning reports, voted year after year after year after year after year, and has many, many teaching awards. So you are in for a wonderful treat today, and for those of you who go to Mount Washington for the next few days, uh, and for the conference on eating disorders, uh, he really is remarkable. And I'll say no more, but introduce my friend, Rich Kripe. And I had one more. One more note, lunch for trainees with Dr. Kripe will be in 5A today. Thanks. Thank you so much. <coughs> First thing I have to do is to say that I have no conflicts. This is the University of Rochester, the Genesee River, and one of the important things to remember about the Genesee River is the only river north, west, up east of the Rocky Mountains that flows north. Um, and Viking Hedberg, uh, live right over here. <laughs> so, really pleased to be here. Thank you so much for the, for the Stewart family. So, what we want to go through today is apply three features of the biopsychosocial model in the evaluation and treatment of eating disorders to be able to recognize the signs and symptoms of restrictive caloric intake, frame adolescent eating disorders as dysfunctional developmental not mental problems, the serious biological, psychological, and social. And notice the cause and effects goes back and forth. That's a key concept of the biopsychosocial model. It's not unidirectional, it's back and forth. And then empower parents to help restore their child's body weight and nutrition, rather than blame them for the weight loss. So, first thing we'll do is go through the DSM-5 criteria. And the key point there is no judgment, no numbers. That was, I was pleased to be honored, honored to be part of that program. Uh, the biopsychosocial approach to patient care by Engel, the signs and symptoms of weight loss, Ansel Keys and his group, with respect to metabolism, heart, bone, and brain, and then frame conditions as developmental disorders of brain circuitry, not merely mental disorders, and that would be Tom Insel, the former head of the National Institutes of Mental Health, where he, uh, in 2007, said, said that eating disorders are brain circuit disorders. Um, and I think that's a much better way to frame uh, what we're seeing. 
strategies to engage the patients and parents and the family, uh, family-based treatment, folks like Block and LaGrange. Uh, and then I want to make sure we leave time for discussion. So I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. And everybody who's registered all of these slides, you have them available. So there's some I want to go through fairly quickly, but for those who, just to kind of make sure that everybody's grounded in what we're talking about. So, I was asked to be on the DSM-5 work group to come up with a new uh, criteria for eating disorders. I was the only pediatrician on the group. I said, no, I'm not the right person for this. Uh, Tim Wiles finally convinced me that I had to go. Um, and my very first meeting, I said to everyone in the, in the group there, why is the first word of the first criterion for restrictive anorexia nervosa the word refusal? And they kind of said, what's your point? Well, refusal is a pejorative term. It says, I know why you're doing something, and you're seeing a pain. Excuse me just for a moment. Um, make sure we, we can make sure we can oh. hear you. I'm sorry. There. Oh. <laughs> OK, maybe this will get better then. OK. Um, and so the issue is the word refusal, and I said, and we wonder why we can't help patients with anorexia nervosa when I diagnose Sue Tansky as having anorexia nervosa, because you refuse to do what I tell you to do. And they said, well, gee, we never thought of that. I said, right, because most of the researchers talk to their research assistants. They don't really talk to patients very much. And so all of my information comes from actually talking to patients. So. so the new criteria, restriction of energy intake relative to requirements leading to a significantly low body weight in the context of age, sex, developmental trajectory, and physical health. So it's in the context of. We no longer worship at the shrine of the scale. There's an intense fear of, becoming, of, of gaining weight or becoming fat, uh, or persistent behavior that interferes with weight gain, even though at a significantly low weight, and the disturbance in which the weight bodies, one's body weight is shaped or experienced. And again, also in the DSM-5, they now have severity uh, rated. Um, so it's the minimum level of severity is based for adults on current body mass index or for children and adolescents on BMI percentile. But the level of severity may be increased to reflect clinical symptoms, degree of functional disability, the need for supervision. So I, I think this is a much more clinically useful uh, set of criteria. So this is George Engel on the right um, and his biopsychosocial model. Some people may be familiar with this. I think the key points about the, about the Engelian biopsychosocial model is that you, know, you can look at things for the organ and organ systems, and then to the nervous system, then to the person, then to two people, then to the family, then to the community, culture, subculture, society, nation, biosphere. And I think the key point about this model is that everything goes back and forth. Uh, it's not like an infectious disease. This causes this, causes this, causes this. Everything is, in, is interactive in a dynamic interplay. So why do I have a group of college students from University of Minnesota, engineering majors at University of Minnesota? Well, the, um, in World War II, we had people coming back from both the Pacific Rim and concentration camps in Europe. And uh, they came back completely starved. And when they came back, they were fed 10,000 calories a day, and a lot of them died. Uh, and we said, you know, we can't be doing this. So they wanted to do a study of looking at what's going on with respect to um, how to refeed someone after they've been starved. But interestingly, you can only study someone who's been starved by first starving them. 
So I think the area of research that we're, we, 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 we rely a lot on is research that was actually done back in the 40s um, in an effort to be able to figure out how to refeed people who've been starved. And this, this is a group of engineering majors who volunteered to be um, uh, research subjects in this study. Uh, and we know they're engineering majors, because look at all the pocket protectors. There's one, <laughs> there's another, there's another, there's another, there's another, there's another. There's another, and this guy, this guy has two. <laughs> so we know they're engineers. My father's an engineer, my nephew's an engineer, all engineers in my family. I don't have an engineering brain, however, but these guys, were, they, they signed up to be as conscientious objectors. And this is what they look like when they started the refeeding program. So what did we learn? What did these young men uh, experience in the process of being starved? We've learned what the physiology of starvation does, and the physiology of anorexia nervosa is the physiology of starvation. There's not a unique physiology of anorexia nervosa. So when we, start, when we start to see patients, one of the things I like to start with is an evaluation of their weight loss. Uh, what was your intention? Sometimes kids start with an intention of, well, I just want to get in shape for this sport, or, uh, you know, now kids go to Grand Cayman Islands for the winter break. You know, I drove to Atlantic City for one day and came back because that was, that was kind of it. But you start an intention. It may start with the best of intentions, but then kind of goes awry. What are the methods that you're using? Food restriction, exercise, purging, vomiting, laxative, diuretics. And I ask these questions specifically to be able to uh, not to give them some ideas, because as, as Sue has heard me say, you never get into a battle of wills or a battle of wits with a person with an eating disorder because she, 90% of the patients are female. She's smarter than you are, and she has more willpower than you do, or maybe more won't power. So folks in the back who want to come in, there's some seats up here. I hate to see people standing in the back like in church. So you can. <laughs> OK. And then the signs, symptoms and signs associated with semi-starvation. These are what we do in the evaluation of the weight loss. And again, low energy intake, there are symptoms associated with in the physical health, loss of menstrual periods, which actually comes fairly early, cold hands and feet, constipation, abdominal pain with eating, early satiety and bloating, dry skin, hair loss, lanugo, headaches, fainting, dizziness, lethargy, and then finally true anorexia nervosa. And I think one of the things when I came to Rochester in 1979 and we had the DSM-2 that was about three quarters of an inch thick, uh, the, uh, the, one of the diagnostic features was misinterpretation of body sensations such that one feels full bloated or early satiety after eating a small amount of food. Guess what? It's not misinterpretation. People have gastroparesis. But what we don't know, we kind of say, well, it's psychological. It's just in your head. And the more we start to study the physiology of eating disorders, uh, a lot of what we attribute to, um, to the to psychological processes are actually physiological processes. So mental health, concentration, decisions, irritability, depression, social withdrawal, obsessiveness. So again, all of these are in the handouts, but I just want to kind of go through these. These are things that we need to keep in mind. What are the signs of low energy intake? Well, they become very low at that low temperature uh, and cold blue hands and feet, low, low blood, low pulse, and, low, and, and early uh, Orthostatic pulse differential from lying down to standing, the pulse goes up. Uh, low blood pressure, that's a fairly late one. Loss of muscle mass, gastroparesis, as we mentioned. Uh, abnormal labs, such as a, there's a low glucose, 
mildly elevated liver function tests, neutropenia, and uh, the ECG is nonspecific. Uh, negative things, we, it's important to always do a fundoscopic exam. Patients have been diagnosed with having anorexia nervosa when, in fact, they have a Rathke-Spouch tumor or a craniopharyngioma. Uh, there should not be any uh, organ enlargement. There should not be any lymphadenopathy. So when we're assessing these patients, how do we go about this? Well, the physical examination in a gown, and I want to look for low, low temperature, uh, cold blue hands and feet with slow capillary refill, the dry skin, alopecia, all the things we mentioned, the low pulse and a pulse differential from lying to standing. Uh, there's also loss of lean and fat tissue, and then salivary gland enlargement for those who are binging and vomiting. And then we also like to look for nutritional records. And people, it's interesting, people say, well, you, you can't ask them to, to uh, fill out a nutrition record because we know these patients all lie. No, we don't know they lie. We put them in the position where lying may make it easier for them to, quote, get away with things. But that's because I think what they're concerned about, if they tell the truth, they're going to get in trouble. And one of the most important things is that we do not, we do not you know, uh, come across as somebody who's going to get somebody and somebody's going to get in trouble. They're like, you're going to be hospitalized. Hospitalization should never, ever be a threat. It's an intensification of treatment. Same thing with an NG tube. So when I start hearing patients, parents saying, well, you better do this or he's going to stick a tube down your nose, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. Let's, let's review why we do hospitalization. Let's review why we do um, NG tubes. Lab studies, um, we get very few lab studies because uh, the CBC will show mild anemia. There's neutropenia, but there's marginalization of the, of the white cells so that they can actually recruit white cells in case of an infection. The sed rate and C-reactive protein are both normal. Urinalysis, pH, and urine-specific gravity. Might do some electrolytes and, and, and with a chemistry panel. Um, and again, you might see the hypochlorinic, so the low potassium, low chloride, metabolic alkalosis with vomiting. Uh, mild elevation of the liver functions. Um, and then you can do some other tests. The T4 is usually normal. The reverse T3 tends to be high, and the T3 may be low. But the, uh, the IGF-1, so the uh, uh, growth factors are, are decreased. Uh, somatomedin C it was its former name. So now we're going to get into the major systems affected. Metabolically, again, hypometabolism and refeeding syndrome are two things we need to keep aware of. Cardiovascular, orthostatic pulse changes and arrhythmias. Reproductive has to do with reproductive and the musculoskeletal are closely aligned with each other, osteoporosis. And then brain, the reward and threat circuitry and executive function. So this is a patient uh, who came, actually, this is after she gained a lot of weight. Uh, as you can see the surface anatomy uh, on the left side on her shoulder. You can see basically make out exactly what the humerus looks like. Um, and we see the, so there's muscle wasting, but then also this fine downy type hair um, over, the, uh, over the upper torso and also with the face. And this is actually much less noticeable than it was when she first came into the hospital. So we know that low energy intake results in wasting of the lean, that is the muscle mass, more than fat mass. Most people with eating disorder assume I'm losing weight, I'm losing fat. No, you're actually probably losing more lean than fat just because of the way things are going. Metabolism, again, occurs in the, in, but metabolism occurs in the lean body mass. Fat is relatively physiologically inert. So when metabolism is happening, it's happening in the lean body mass. But what the body does to conserve energy is there might be a decrease in the both basal metabolic rate, 
drop in the temperature, drop in the heart rate, decrease peripheral blood flow, decrease peripheral resistance, decrease physical activity, and with amenorrhea, what have I just described? This is the physiology of hibernation. So a hibernating animal uh, loads up with food before and then goes quiet, and it's the same physiology of starvation. It's going into a retreat mode. So the thing that I always like to say to patients is, I trust you, but I don't trust your eating disorder. This was a patient who uh, is now a very seasoned psychiatric nurse working at the, uh, the Psych Institute in, in, in Rochester. She, she's doing amazing. But this was when she was about 17. Uh, week one, here was her weight. And I was seeing her weekly. And what we saw by week five, her temperature, I mean, her, her weight had stayed the same. But her specific gravity was low. Hmm, wonder what that's about. And her pulse went from 44 to 82, and her temperature was dropping. So I said, this doesn't really make sense, because this was what I saw from a, when I examined her. You can see on the right side, I pressed, my, I pressed the dorsum of her foot, and this was five seconds afterwards. So there's still slow capillary refill. Uh, down a little bit further, it doesn't, this didn't copy real well, but it's a, there's a cyanosis. And then on the very end, you see it's kind of orange. Uh, so she had uh, carotenemia. And so capillary refill, acrocyanosis, and carotenemia. So I said, well, we need to recheck your weight. And she said, well, the nurses just did that. I said, yeah, I know, but we need to recheck your weight. Because your, your weight and your physiologic status do not make sense to me. Don't you trust me? Of course I trust you. I don't trust your eating disorder. So let's go get your weight. And what we found was her weight was 86 pounds when I checked it. And we come back to the room, and this is what's on the examining table. So what she realized is that they're going to open up the gown from down the back. They have to be able to see from the back of my head to my butt that I don't have any extra weights or anything like that. And what she realized is if I take these locks and take my scrunchie off and put the scrunchie over my shoulder and keep the locks in my arm, I can walk normally, and they can look at my back, and they see no underwear, and they're none the wiser. OK, now what? OK, oh, okay. got the right thing. So I think this is a situation where I think the, the teaching point here is I'm somewhat concerned when the only person seeing a patient is, for example, a psychiatric social worker. And I love psychiatric social workers. I think they can do often better job than some other folks because uh, they're more real sometimes. Uh, but if they're do the ones checking the weight, there's just too much opportunity to make it look like they're doing well when they're really not. So let's move on to cardiovascular status. So again, we've already talked about this. They have low, low, low pulse because of low energy intake. They're cold hands and feet because of energy conservation. Slow capillary refill because of poor perfusion. Acrocyanosis with deoxygenated hemoglobin. Uh, again, the purple hands. Uh, and orthostatic pulse differential greater than 30 beats a minute. Um, and what we realized is we did some research uh, back in the, wow, it was a while ago, um, autonomic dysregulation. Uh, and we found that the sympathetic and parasympathetic tone have an imbalance uh, such that when we go from supine to standing, vagal tone should drop out almost entirely, and sympathetic tone should go up a little bit. And what we find in starvation, the vagal tone drops a little bit, but the sympathetic tone goes through the roof. So the vagotony and supine position, their pulse is 40. The sympathetic excess and standing position, their pulse goes up to 80 or 90, et cetera. So that's physiologic evidence that uh, associated with low weight, uh, low caloric intake. So 
Symptoms respond to adequate nutrition. We know that adequate energy intake is needed to gain weight, and this was work we did back in 1982 with Gilbert Forbes. Wow, he was my mentor. Um, and what we found was 70% of the weight gain uh, was lean body mass. And again, I think a patient says, I've gained five pounds, I've gained five pounds of fat. No, actually, the majority of what you've gained is lean body mass muscle. We have evidence to show that. Uh, that can sometimes be a little bit reassuring, but not really. Uh, if you think telling them something is going to change their mind, don't try to change their mind. Just inform them. That's what I do. I inform people. If they change their mind, fine. If they don't, fine. And then you can exercise only after intake exceeds output. So now that takes us to the amenorrhea piece. Uh, amenorrhea and anorexia nervosa, um, again, with, due to hypothalamic uh, control. Um, so low weight, low lean and fat body mass, exercise, stress, very low fat diet, all of those things may come into play on uh, how, why there's uh, uh, amenorrhea um, in anorexia nervosa. And in 30% of patients, it's before they start really losing weight. And that's probably because of the cortical stress that they're under. So that the weight loss, the dieting, is kind of a final common pathway. But prior to that, there's usually a fair amount of stress. So the menstrual weight, we did a study looking at the, the weight in, in follow-up. Uh, and a patient's about 92% of average body weight for height and sex using using the um, uh, NHANES data. Um, and then my colleague, uh, Neville Golden, who is now out at Stanford, but when he wrote this, was uh, at, uh, down at Long Island Jewish Hospital in Long Island. Uh, he found that about the 27th percentile BMI for age and sex uh, was the average. And 50% of girls got their menstrual periods back when their body mass index was somewhere between 14th and 39th percentile. So, one thing I have trouble with is some people in the field say, well, you have to get back to 50% average body weight. Well, only one person can be at the 50th percentile out of 100. And so to say everybody has to be 50th percentile does not acknowledge what normal population variation looks like. And so I'm, I'm a little bit concerned when people start making comments about weight and things like that, and they really are kind of out of their league. So um, I hope that we can kind of change some of that. Certainly everybody in, in New Hampshire and and Connecticut and other places and Massachusetts and will know the difference, Vermont. <laughs> the other thing is that birth control pills preclude using menses as a sign of physical health and recovery because they induce withdrawal bleeding, not menses. So the things that I always kind of cause me to, to shudder is when I hear someone saying, well, we'll give you these pills to start your menstrual periods. No. And then the other thing is, well, we're going to take these pills to kickstart the menstrual period. I don't know if those are phrases they use here, but in Rochester, kickstart, like it's a Harley Davidson or something. You know? <laughs> no, all the pills do, first of all, they don't do anything to produce menses, and they also don't help the blood, they also don't help the bone mineral density, which we'll get to right now. So osteoporosis and osteopenia and anorexia nervosa, a very, very serious concern, very serious concern. We know that they have low estrogen, uh, which is both a growth hormone and anti-resorptive. So low, uh, low estrogen, there's not much growth potential, uh, and, and there's increased resorption. We know there's low muscle mass. We know they have low body weight. And those two things lead to low weight-bearing exercise, load-bearing exercise, low IGF-1, high cortisol, low calcium intake, low vitamin D intake and levels, 
possibly low leptin, low bone formation markers, and all of those things are related to nutrition, not estrogen. So, um, you know, when people were saying, well, we know that we know that postmenopausal women, if they take estrogen, can increase their bone density. Uh, but a 14-year-old amenorrhea girl is not a postmenopausal woman. Um, and so I think we now realize that uh, that trying to use bone, trying to increase bone density by using hormone replacement therapy doesn't work. And I think we've also learned that probably for postmenopausal women, sometimes the estrogen is not such a great idea. It takes time to get all those data together. But this, we did a study um, um, back in, gosh, when was that? It was a while ago as well. So we did, we did tetracycline double-labeled bone biopsy. So you give a person a, a dose of tetracycline for a few days, and then you check them again like six months later, and the amount of, and, and then take a bone biopsy and look at under, uh, under uh, ultraviolet light, they, they, uh, the uh, tetracycline lights up, and you can see the distance, the amount of bone mineral that's been gained uh, over, over that time. And what we found was that the, those who had been on oral contraceptive pills at 79% of average body weight, there was no increased bone apposition and no resorption, uh, but resorption. There was still, still continued resorption, actually. Uh, and those who were not on all contraceptive pills, but at 87% average body weight, uh, there was normal apposition and no resorption. Six months later, we found that the oral contraceptive pill patients actually lost bone mineral density 1.9%, and those who did not take any pills had increased their bone mineral density by 1.3%. So low, in the low weight, oral contraceptive pills are of no benefit to bone accrual and density, except if you're in extremely low weight levels. But at those kinds of levels, we should be talking about refeeding anyway. So again, cautionary tale, pills to either bring on menses, eh, pills to build bone density, eh. The, the, the main the, the take-home message is, what is the best medicine to treat restrictive anorexia nervosa? Dr. Tansky or Dr. Hedberg can answer this. Food. Right. OK. So again, weight gain causes some improvement in bone accrual, but not to control levels. And vitamin D supplementation does not increase bone mineral density. Oral estrogen is not effective in increasing bone mineral density due to the low IGF-1 suppressive effects, also the high cortisol suppressive effects. Bisphosphonates uh, do not increase bone mineral density in adolescents. And because these things are stored permanently, I think most of us would say that uh, there should, this should not be used in women of weight-bearing, of weight-bearing, of child-bearing age, uh, because, the, um, because the potential of getting back to the, and it's a very, Powerful anti-resorptive agent. The possibility of going into the into the fetus and the child is uh, is is great. So you know, my saying is, weight gain is necessary but not sufficient for recovery of bone mineral density. So if they don't gain weight, they're not going to increase bone density. Merely gaining weight doesn't mean they'll necessarily gain bone density, but it's a it's a necessary but not sufficient. So now I want to get to some of the newer research, really kind of very fascinating stuff with respect to the brain, anatomy, functions, and circuits. So here's an MRI. Here's an fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And here's diffusion tensor imaging. This is showing how circuits interact with each other. And I think the, 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 one of the big problems with this new fancy technology is we tend to overinterpret it. Um, but I think it is showing us where there are some potential things to look into 
to understand why a person might have the behaviors of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. And so we're, we see here the, the uh, uh, adolescent brain, prefrontal cortex, corpus callosum, basal ganglia. And we know that brain uh, matures from the caudal to the rostral area. So the last places to come online is the prefrontal cortex and the ventral, the ventral medial and the uh, dorsolateral uh, prefrontal and frontal cortex. Um, but the problem is that what comes online before them is the limbic system on the inside. And the limbic system, I think, is where the action is. So we see all the different components, especially the amygdala. So the amygdala, that little almond-shaped thing, one on either side, the amygdala is, the, is like the thing that starts, stands sentry looking for danger. Uh, and it sees danger everywhere. And if you have anorexia nervosa, danger is everywhere. And so I think that's an important kind of a foundation to see that it's, uh, it's hard having anorexia nervosa. It's really hard. So again, the brain anatomy, what we see is dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, two important areas. Also the cingular gyrus, lots of work going on there, lots of interconnections. Uh, we still don't have it all mapped out, but that's where the action is. And I think over time we'll be able to understand a little bit better. So what are some of the prefrontal, pre, the prefront, the frontal and prefrontal lobe functions? Well, the ventral medial prefrontal has to do with risk of reg regulation of emotions, weighing risks, rewards, learning from experience. That area down there is red because so-called hot cognitive thing hot cognitive processes. And then the dorsolateral frontal, future orientation, impulses, inhibition of impulses. And as I said, the uh, maturation of the brain goes in this direction. So what are the last parts of the human brain to get fully developed, at least from an anatomical connection point of view? The part that we think with. And so this part the limbic system, sometimes also called the lizard brain. So if this is the wizard brain, and that's the lizard brain, eating disorders are based in the lizard brain. So this is interesting. Uh, Lisa McInerney, my mentor, uh, we did some studies at, uh, of restrictive anorexia nervosa and set shifting in, uh, in, uh, in adolescence. So it has to do, set shifting is the ability to go from one thing to another, back and forth. Uh, you know, so it says, click on the color, and the color says red, but the color is actually blue. Um, and so that requires the ability to move back and forth, which is prefrontal and frontal cortex kinds of stuff. So we did a study of these young ladies. We had 24-year-olds with restrictive anorexia nervosa, 37 controls. And the ability to switch tasks flexibly, that is set shift, was worse in people with restrictive anorexia nervosa than controls. Uh, and set shifting is associated with executive function in the frontal and prefrontal lobes, uh, cognitive and behavioral components to set shifting, uh, and behavioral so shifting associated with decreased activation of the ventral, ACC, striatothalamic loop, and the frontal brains of regions of the, uh, on MRI. Interesting stuff. So I'm sure that any of you have and inter ever interacted with a person who has an eating disorder. And I'm assuming that in a, in a group this size, there are at least a few parents uh, who have a child uh, or some kind of an experience with a daughter or son having had uh, uh, with restrictive anorexia nervosa. And they do not take change very easily. You know, do not switch things up on them. So 
You know, when I say, oh, I'll be back in 10 minutes, you know, and I come back two hours later, I've set them off because, wait a minute, you said you're going to be back in 10 minutes. That's kind of, the, I think, the, a lot of the structure of the way that they're, they um, kind of approach things, and it's probably part of their wiring. So this is a wonderful book, and uh, Brian Lask and Ian Frampton wrote this, and um, I, I, I feel really bad. Brian Lask is a uh, child and adolescent, uh, adolescent medicine, um, and child and adolescent psychiatrist, and uh, he died uh, a year ago. And uh, it's interesting, when we go to the in, International Conference on Eating Disorders, Brian and I, uh, Brian and I used to get up at opposite uh, uh, you know, microphones and say the same thing. Uh, so now I have to stand up and say it twice. So anyway, um, but what we found, what what he talks about is there's dysfunctional hypothalamic pituitary axle in the stress response. So that conflict leads to withdrawal in individuals with eating disorder. So when they conflict, I have to withdraw from it. They don't enter into it; they withdraw from it. Social information processing network. There's a whole, again, this is part of the brain circuitry. There's a maturation defect in prefrontal executive areas modulating subcortical regions. We've already talked about that. Habit learning. Again, in the prefrontal areas, the basal ganglia and the thalamus, a lot of those areas seem to be affected with starvation. The insula. Most people are saying if you're going to go to one area in the brain, the insula is where it's going to be at because it links the cortex and the subcortex. That's the insula is the part of the brain that, that, that pulls those two things together. The lizard brain and the wizard brain is pulled together through the insula. Um, also, the regulation of the autonomic nervous system with appetite, eating, taste, interoceptive awareness, thought, feeling integration, emotion, language links, all those kinds of things. And then they also have a reduced capacity to integrate cognitive, affective, and physiological information. So how do you put it all together? So I feel this way, but I'm hearing you say this. How do I put that all together? There's deficits in that, and that's probably, again, brain circuitry. So what they, they also in this book, they, they, they showed that with high caloric food pictures. So I look, I'm in an MRI machine. I'm in a functional, oh, okay, yours stays on. That's good. Uh, I'm in a functional MRI machine, and I see a piece of pizza, you know, that's got, it's just right, just the right color, and you see the oil maybe a little bit bubbling, and you see smoke wafting up, and you see the pepperoni, whatever else you want to see. I'm already dumping dopamine into my, into my brain right now with my reward centers. That's what I get. I get reward centers. A person with anorexia nervosa looks at that picture, and the threat centers light up. So I think it's real important to understand what's happening uh, inside the brain of individuals with eating disorder. And that's associated with um, uh, both obsessive compulsive and depressive symptoms. Again, we can just go through these things fairly quickly. Hunger, hunger satiety, how you process information is different. Uh, self versus other body image, lots of different kinds of things like that. Risk and reward, again, problem evaluating the emotional significance of something. So what I, I, I do want to end with these. Um, a few things from, uh, so Michael Strober and Craig Johnson were both former presidents of the Academy for Eating Disorders. Um, I think some of the more thoughtful uh, people in synthesizing things, uh, and this was in the International Journal of Eating Disorders 2012, um, and he just kind of, they come up, come up with a, a, a series of summary statements that I think are a good way to end uh, this presentation. So anorexia nervosa is a brain disease Patients behave strangely, strangely and say illogical things because their actions, perceptions, and utterances 
are irrational because their brain is. Anorexia nervosa is a genetic disorder. And anybody in the family, you didn't cause it, okay? Um, it's a genetic disorder. The features once thought to be part of its psychological realm are actually the effects of its genetic underpinnings having no unique significance. That is, the genetic underpinnings of anxiety. So when I came to Rochester in 1979, everybody was talking about depression as the primary issue. The depression was because of the weight loss. The, the, the uh, engineering majors got depressed as well. It's that underlying anxiety that seems to be harnessed with the, with the eating disorder. So the methods used to study brain biology are prone to overinterpretation. I've already mentioned that, but I think they will be able to give us more information. And because this is one I especially for anybody in the, in the audience who has a family member, because anorexia nervosa is a brain-based illness, family turmoil should be viewed only as a byproduct of the frustration the illness sows. Weight correction needs to take priority for these tensions to resolve. Things said by patients about their relationships, family ones included, should not be taken too seriously. Psychotherapy cannot and should not take place until the brain is mended by restoring weight to normal. I think that's a little bit of a strong statement, but I mean, when I hear parents saying, well, you know, gosh, she's only seeing the psychiatrist one hour a day. Uh, you know, should she be getting more treatment? Actually, she is getting the right treatment because the medicine to treat restrictive anorexia nervosa is food, and we're making sure they're getting that. Family-based therapy is the only acceptable method for treating young patients. This is as far as evidence-based goes. Uh, not only are genes and environment correlated, the effects of each co-evolve and interact, neither influence is deterministic. Brain circuitry, and this is the part that's where there's hope. So I'm imagining a lot of people are say, oh my god, you know, this is hopeless. No, 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 no. There's nothing more encouraging than an adolescent brain. Because there, I mean, when I think of the things that I did when I was an adolescent, I was so stupid, you know? But I, I, I made it through. And so what we're now learning about, you know, brains develop until they're in their mid-20s. Um, and so, but that, that has to do a lot with experience. Anyway, brain circuitry is not fixed, but adapts functionally to the environment and then depends on it, depends on the environment for its continuing expression. Neural circuits have plasticity and support different, at times contrasting, motivational drives depending on the environment's emotional tone. Very, very important concept. And then finally, neurochemical changes brought on by stress, including exposure to adverse rearing environments, strengthen the encoding of memories for negative emo emotional events and also reshape brain morphology and reasons linked to anxiety, fear, learning, and reward seeking. So on the way here from Rochester yesterday, I had a conference call uh, with an insurance company uh, talking about one of my patients who's had 21 different admissions uh, to a facility. She still needs to be in this facility. And it's clear that every time she starts working on her trauma, um, things start to fall apart um, because she's dealing with the trauma that she has to deal with. If she doesn't deal with it, then she can keep her eating disorder. If she deals with it, then everything kind of goes crazy. So it was really painful to hear us all saying, gee, you know, I wish she didn't go through all the trauma that she did, but, but she did. Environmental stress mechanistically increases anxiety proneness by oversensitizing fear-generating structures in the limbic brain, again, especially the amygdala nuclei, and disrupting prefrontal modulation of this region. And here is the 
I think, the really the, the most important point. Conversely, rearing environments characterized by parental warmth can silence genes that otherwise promote anxiety, a finding that may possibly shed at least some high light on why positive family relations have been linked to better short and long-term outcomes. And in this situation, I consider the family to be you all here, uh, whoever the treatment team can kind of form, a, can form a, a family as well. So I really think that what we're seeing is a lot of hope uh, for improvement. Um, and there's not going to be a drug that is going to cure anorexia nervosa because what's the medicine for anorexia nervosa? Food. Okay, we got it. <laughs> so changing roles of parents. This is very interesting. So Lasseg in 1873, he said that they said that there's a preoccupation of relatives. And Gull, in 1874, the parents are generally the worst attendants. Charcot, back, on, back in France. Parents' influence is particularly pernicious. And then in, 19, in 1888, there was debate if it was possible to even treat the patient without isolating her from her family. So family is a hindrance to treatment and a contributor to the development of anorexia nervosa. And the concept is parentectomy, as if the parents were a malignant growth. <laughs> Salvador Mnuchin in, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia uh, talked about the psychosomatic family as the cause of anorexia nervosa. Locke and LaGrange, 2009. Now, parents do not cause eating disorders, but are crucial partners in treatment. So we can now have a, fo a focus that's agnostic, blameless, hopeful, and developmental. Feeding the brain and restoring the weight is the parent's issue, and then the child takes over from there. So the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa are less stringent to facilitate treatment, include no weight criterion, which was illusory in the first place, with severity based on clinical assessment, not weight, which can be manipulated. Dysfunctional brain circuitry, not family dynamics, accounts for much dysfunctional behavior in anorexia nervosa. Improvements in metabolism, circulation, and bone health depend on adequate nutrition. Food is medicine. Okay, yeah, and interdisciplinary care, including family-based therapy, has the best evidence for success. So I want to thank you all for your attention, and I wanted to leave enough time so we could have some discussion here. Thank you. Yeah, right here. Yeah, the trauma, the, the you know, it's issue, it, the issue is that there was initially a thought that because many of the patients with restrictive anorexia nervosa who were in, were in treatment facilities had a history of sexual abuse, that there was a seemed, to, a seemed to be a link. I think the link is not that people who have eating disorders have a higher rate of abuse, because unfortunately, abuse is, is distressingly common. Uh, but it's those who are abused, and as a result of that abuse, can't get out of the cycle of the eating disorder, and they end up in chronic care facilities. So I think when we look at long-term uh, large populations, there's not a, a, uh, a, a closer link. But for those who are sick, who keep coming back, 
uh, there is much more likely to be a, a link with, with trauma. And certainly, that kind of trauma activates the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Julie. Um, the information that you had about the brain circuitry with restricted MRSA, mm -hmm. do we know whether anything similarly about either bulimia or binge eating disorder and the brain circuitry? Good question. So the question is, we know about anorexia nervosa, but what about binge eating disorder, which is the most common uh, eating disorder in, in the United States? Just go to any golden corral and, and you'll see. Um, the... Um, they haven't been doing that study very much yet. I think there's so much more interest in anorexia nervosa because anorexia nervosa is so paradoxical. I mean, these really smart, bright people who say, I'm fat. And wait, how can you say you're fat? And I think one of the most important things that, that we do in this, so the answer to your question is we don't have a lot of data, but I'm sure it will start emerging, especially for the bulimia nervosa, because there's, you know, for every one patient with restrictive anorexia nervosa, there's probably 10 patients with bulimia nervosa. And for every one patient with bulimia nervosa, there's probably 100 patients with binge eating. Um, but one of the things that I really like to, you know, to, to point out with, uh, to, to families and, and patients um, is that the, uh, the brain circuitry is, malleable. Uh, it can change because we know it's going to change just with growth and development. Um, but I, I, I really think that the, um, you know, by avoiding any kind of blame, et cetera, and working with the family, uh, I really think holds a lot of promise for in, in, in treatment. So uh, we don't have a lot of data regarding what's happening uh, from an anatomical, re, you know, a, in a functional way in, in the brain. In, in thinking of, of Dr. Engel's biopsychosocial model, can you say some more about some of the social and cultural aspects of? Absolutely, thank you. So George Engel, I had the privilege of studying under George Engel. He, as he was developing Alzheimer's disease, he realized he was losing it. And so we gathered a whole bunch of people at the U of R who were interested in the biopsychosocial model. And he said, I'm deputizing you to kind of go out in the world. So that I'm, I'm here on Dr. Engel's behalf. He's channeling me. Um, the, the first question I now see, what the first question I ask, well, it's not a question, it's a statement. I ask a patient when they're coming in for anorexia nervosa, especially if it's a female, tell me about mean girls in your school. And I would say 40% of people start crying right then and there. Um, we don't have a good understanding why male interactions during adolescence tends to be more physical, aggressive. You know, you wrestle, you, you fight each other, you shake hands, you're best of friends. But for females, it's so much more vicious, a, a backbiting behind. There's a great book, but don't read it on a, on, except on a day where it, the weather is nice. It's called <laughs> um, um, Odd Girl Out. And it's just a series of these stories of, of females Adolescence, pre-adolescence, early adolescence, where the viciousness of the mean girls is just, I don't understand it. Uh, I'm just glad I'm a guy. Because uh, I'm sure I would have been, I would have been, I would have been the target of it. So I think that those kinds of issues, also the issue of the ubiquity of photoshopped uh, pictures, and which people say, oh, I need to look like that. Uh, we do have in New York State, we're starting legislature, legislation to uh, minimize that you, models from Ralph Lauren especially uh, need to have a minimal body mass index. It already happens in Italy, it happens in Spain, it happens in Australia, it happens in Europe. But of course, the, 
the, um, you know, the fashion industry, which is made up of a bunch of misogynists, um, is, uh, is, has been fighting this. So I'm, I'm hoping we can get that changed, at least in New York. Um, the other thing is, again, uh, the thigh gap. Um, girls now believe that if you were to stand, if you were to stand looking at me and I had no underwear on, there should be a gap about this far between my upper thighs because somebody can Photoshop that. And so I think you're, what you're talking about is really an inundation with poisonous, toxic information. Uh, and so I, I like to ask those kinds of things. I also ask patients, tell me, again, don't ask the question, tell me which websites you go on to find out more about anorexia nervosa, because there's all these pro-ana, pro-anorexia, pro-bulimia pro sites, so. And there was a one in, in the, right? It's, it's, it's hard to tell, and would it, wouldn't it be great if Ansel Keys research back in the 1940s, if they could do that kind of stuff, looking at adolescent young adult males in the refeeding part of things, but I don't think we have those data. And I will say that the viciousness is balanced by the overwhelming nurturing Absolutely. No, no. So Viking, Vikings heard me say this, and, and I think Sue probably has as well. Um, in when I came to Rochester in 1979, you know, we were. I was taught that you went from dependence to independence. Except there was a woman named Carol Gilligan, who was a research assistant of Stanley Kohlberg, who did all the moral stuff, and. Uh, he, of course, all he studied were men, boys, because I studied girls, because whatever's true for boys must be true for girls, only less true. Um, and so he comes up and he gives, the, he gives girls these, um, these ethical dilemmas that boys answer. And the girls' most common answer was, it depends. Tell me about this. Tell me how that affects that person. And Stanley Kohlberg said, oh, that's because girls, girls are morally deficient. <laughs> Carol Gilligan, his research assistant, said, wait a minute, maybe they're not deficient, maybe they're different. And so she starts to say, males and females, I mean, so John Gray, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, absolutely. And one of the things that's most exciting about what you're talking about, the Academy, at the Society of Adolescent Health and Medicine two years ago, Niobe Way, who's a social psychologist from Columbia, she is studying boys in the inner city of Manhattan, Harlem specifically and realizing that boys yearn for the same thing that girls can do, but they don't get. So girls are about connectedness. Boys are about, I don't know what boys are about. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, she says it's connectedness, but they don't let them societally have it. Yeah, exactly, right, right, right. They yearn for it, but they don't get it. So I think, so, oh, that's, that's I know I've, I've got off. So, Dependence to independence. And so I'm learning from two very independent women, O.J. Saylor and, uh, and Lisa McInerney, both went to seven sister schools. You know what I mean? I was really intimidated by these people. Um, and um, so I learned independent, you, you go from dependence to independence. And then I started learning independence. If you ask an adolescent girl, tell me about being independent, it tends to have a negative balance. Because independence, you're isolated, you're cut off, you're not connected. 
Um, and but for boys, independence means you know you can have pizza for breakfast. You don't have to. You can leave your underwear on the floor. You can do whatever you want to do. You know, it's don't have to take a shower if you don't want to. Um, kind of, I'm the king of the hill. And and so it was interesting. I switched from calling about from dependence to independence. I now talk about dependence to autonomy and interdependence. And so I think as men evolve, I hope we can catch up with women in some ways. You know, we only have, remember, we've got this tiny little Y chromosome that has nothing valuable on it. <laughs> you know, the Y chromosome has hairy pinna of the ear. You know, it's really kind of, we got really shafted, you know? <laughs> but, you know, we keep trying the best we can, so, and, yeah. Did the study group of engineers, for the most part, recover? Excellent question. The question about the study group of the engineers, did they most recover? Three of them dropped out of school to become chefs. <laughs> and they all talked about the transformative experience of being starved like that. And it stayed with them the rest of their lives. Most of them were pretty good, but the, the issue is there may well be something that happens in our brains with prolonged starvation that may not be as much plasticity, so, yeah. Quick question about boys versus girls, so I know. It's not boys versus girls, it's boys and girls. Boys symptoms and the difference between girl symptoms and the girls suffer from anemoria. What, what about boys happens there? Excellent question. Boys tend to be, my, my experience with boys, and I think in the literature, the boys tend to be much more obsessive compulsive. Boys are doing body checking all the time. So boys will, you know, they'll be walking around the house, they'll pick their shirt up and say to mom, do I look fat? Uh, they're doing a lot of body checking. And so I think in general, I, we tend to see more anxiety in an obsessive compulsive kind of way. And because the male ideal is, you know, somebody who you see on TV who, you know, buys some machine and gets ripped abs and things like that. Um, and so I think because their image is, being strong, being big, et cetera, I think they tend to focus on that more. But it, it, most, of, most of the things are similar. I yeah. mean, actually, though, physically, like the sexual, hormonal. Oh, yeah. OK. So girls, estrogen drops. Um, all the sex hormones drop. Boys, testosterone drops. So I had a kid, Andy. He's now 46 years old. I keep in touch with him by, uh, by in FaceTime. Um, he's. <laughs> He was 16 years old. He was the ultimate geek. I mean, he had pocket protectors. He buttoned his top shirt, buttoned on his shirt, but didn't have a tie or anything like that. He played Dungeons and Dragons. This is back in 1981. Um, and I was asked him, I, so the question I ask is, do you get erections in the morning? Most adolescent boys get erections in the morning. And he said, no, why are you asking? I said, well, because testosterone drops with starvation just like estrogen drops. Um, and he said, Oh, that's why I thought it was because I was thinking about food all the time. And so I said, no, no, it's, it's, he comes back recovered. This is again, early 80s. He's got a leather jacket on. <laughs> He's got, a, he, this is, you know, disco days. He's got a shirt down to here. He's got a girl's high school ring on a chain around his neck. And he's got a hickey <laughs> about this big. And I, I just had to bite my, I said, so Andy, uh, you're looking, you're looking different, you know? And I said, so do you have a girlfriend? He said, oh yeah, how do you know? So um, the thing is, libido increases in both females and males, and it drops in both females and males. So 
So we have those who are staying for the evening research conference with many other opportunities of a panel discussion as well. So keep picking Dr. Krebby's brain. Residents and faculty who are interested in noon in L5A, it'll be a non-eating disorders discussion uh, about uh, diagnostic dilemmas and when you treat the patient versus continuing to treat tests. And it's my pleasure to present on behalf of the Stewart family and, and Chad a small token of our appreciation. Thank you. For this start Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.